is Illinois Public Media, WILL 580 AM and 90.9 FM HD3, Urbana. Greetings. Welcome to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, coming to you live today on WILL AM 580. Our guest today, one of our favorite guests to have on the show who hasn't been on for a year or so, David Sirota, journalist, activist, radio host, and author. All things rolled into one. Joining us for the full hour today to talk about the state of the United States, our politics, November, and whatever else you want to talk about. It should be a wonderful hour. I hope you'll join us. But before we go to our guest, let's go to NPR News. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Outside Damascus, reports of hundreds dead, shot execution style. NPR's Deborah Amos tells us Syrian state media is calling it an operation to cleanse terrorists. On Friday, the Syrian army mounted a massive operation on Daria, a suburban neighborhood of 200,000 mostly Sunni Muslims pounding the city with artillery and stationing snipers on rooftops, according to residents. Activists reached in Daria reports soldiers and civilian militia swept through the town on Saturday, carrying out house-to-house raids targeting rebel sympathizers. Body dumps were later discovered with more than 300 dead. Grisly videos of the bloody corpses were uploaded to the Internet. The details of the death count can't be independently confirmed. But Daria has been a rebel stronghold for months. In a pattern often repeated in this conflict, the army has driven out rebels in Daria, but they are likely to return. Deborah Amos, NPR News, Antakya. The state of Florida and the Gulf Coast, including New Orleans, are bracing for Tropical Storm Isaac. As a result, GOP convention planners in Tampa are going back to the drawing board as day one of events has been canceled due to the weather. The four-day convention had been scheduled to start tomorrow. Meanwhile, Republican hopeful Mitt Romney is working on his acceptance speech. He talked about some of his broad themes on Fox News Sunday. I believe in America and in the American people that I believe that this nation is unique and exceptional and that we have everything we need to continue to lead the world in prosperity and in peace. He's taking a rare day off today at his lakeside vacation home in New Hampshire. Right now it looks like he'll deliver that speech Thursday. Astronaut Neil Armstrong was intensely private and rarely spoke in public. But as Arizona Public Radio's Shelley Smithson reports, the first man to walk on the moon who died this weekend at the age of 82, made an exception just one month ago. Before the Apollo 11 mission in 1969, Neil Armstrong and his crewmates simulated the moon environment at sites near Flagstaff, Arizona, including the Grand Canyon. Armstrong returned to Flagstaff in July to commission a new telescope at Lowell Observatory. He had peered at the moon through telescopes at Lowell and mapped his lunar landing. Armstrong recalled that historic moment during a speech here last month. From the Sea of Tranquility, the Earth hung above me 23 degrees west of the zenith, a turquoise pendant against a black velvet sky. Always humble, Armstrong joked that he was a mere technician on the moon mission. For NPR News, I'm Shelley Smithson in Flagstaff. From Washington, you're listening to NPR News. In Russia, three members of a feminist punk band convicted earlier this month are preparing to appeal their sentences. And now, as NPR's Corey Flintoff tells us, two other band members have reportedly fled the country to avoid prosecution for staging a protest in a church. Five members of the all-female band Pussy Riot took part in last winter's protest at Christ the Redeemer Cathedral in Moscow, but only three were arrested and tried. Moscow police announced last week that they were still looking for the band members who escaped, a move that was widely interpreted to mean that the government intends to continue its crackdown on dissidents. The group, which is an anonymous collective of more than a dozen people, announced on Twitter that the two fugitive band members are safe outside of Russia. 
Meanwhile, lawyers for the convicted band members say they'll appeal their two-year jail sentences next week. Corey Flintoff, NPR News, Moscow. Authorities say a hiker from California has died in Alaska's Denali National Park as a result of a grizzly bear mauling. It was that park's first such fatality. Officials say the 49-year-old victim from San Diego had photographed the bear, which then attacked and killed him. Reportedly, he was much closer to the bear than park rules allow. At the box office this weekend, Expendables 2 held steady at the number one spot. According to studio estimates, the movie about aging tough guys sold $13.5 million in tickets from Friday through today. Another action sequel, The Bourne Legacy, landed in the number two spot. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives at GatesFoundation.org. Okie dokie. Welcome back to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, coming to you live today in WILL AM 580, based right here in uh, beautiful Urbana, Illinois. I've got as my guest today one of my favorite guests, David Sirota, a columnist for Salon.com, a radio host of a program out in Denver, the author of several best-selling books, most recently Back to the Future, and in general, one of the most knowledgeable political observers and participants of our times. You can find out all about David Sroda at davidsroda.com. David, welcome to Media Matters. Thanks for having me back, Bob. It's great to have you, and you know we've got the Republican convention coming up next week. Uh, are you going to be down in Tampa? No, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be here in, in Denver, Colorado. Okay, well, you'll avoid the, the tropical storm then, fortunately. Yes. Well, what, yes. you know, let's talk about Romney, Ryan, the state of the Republican Party going into the convention. Uh, what is your assessment of, of, of the ticket uh, in the party and what it means for America? Well, I think, first of all, I think the conventions have become glorified television shows, and, and I, I'm not quite sure why they get the media attention that, that they do because I think they're they get the media they get media attention even though the media most people in the media will acknowledge that they're they're scripted television shows so it's really a, a commercial that we're watching and news doesn't really happen there I would say the specifically the Republican ticket going into the convention I, I had I had I guess, call me an eternal optimist, but I had some hopes that, that Mitt Romney, in, before he picked his vice presidential candidate, would would not pick somebody so, I guess, openly extreme. Mitt Romney, as governor of Massachusetts, was not exactly my cup of tea, but he, he wasn't the Mitt Romney who's running for president now. He was a much more moderate figure, in some cases, I would argue, more, more politically progressive than, than President Obama. But... I think the pick of Paul Ryan shows that the Republican Party apparatus is is focused on taking candidates that that are more mainstream and more moderate and not allowing them to be that way when they become the party's nominee. And I think the Ryan pick going into the convention shows that Mitt Romney is fully now a captive of his party's really right-wing base and not not somebody who who is... Uh, an independent voice for moderation in that party. What, David, sort of, what do you mean when you call Paul Ryan sort of from the extreme part of the party? What are some of the positions that he holds or champions that qualify him for that designation? Well, this is a person who, on on economic issues, is an out and out Ayn Rander, somebody who doesn't fundamentally believe in in the constructive role that that the common good can play in our in our politics in our society this you look at the paul by paul ryan's budget it's it's a budget to voucherize which i would argue is is essentially to destroy medicare it's a budget to privatize social security at and it's a budget that predicates all that uh, that by uh, on the idea that we can't afford to 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 
to financially buttress these programs, even though in the same budget he proposes to get rid of capital gains taxes, get rid of taxes on 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 dividend, on in, on interest, et cetera, et cetera, to bring down somebody like Mitt Romney's tax rates to I believe it was less than one percent. So it, it's predicated on this idea that the only thing the government can do is to is to lower taxes on the very wealthy and to get rid of the programs that have sustained the middle class in this country. And he's very open and. And I would say he's very honest about that. And if you can give him credit for being honest about it, it's honest in its extremism. And then there's the whole set of issues about a woman's right to choose. Paul Ryan is adamantly against it, has proposed extreme bills about outlawing abortion. He's somebody who, and, and, and what bothers me is that he gets billed as some sort of small government conservative. I mean, this is a person who has voted for every major corporate bailout that he, that's been in front of him as a congressman. He's somebody who has voted for the, the huge government security uh, surveillance state. He is, in a sense, both a huge government Republican and also somebody who, do, who, who the only place he doesn't believe government has a role would be in the most successful social programs of the last hundred years. Our guest, David Sirota, joining us live today in Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, here in WILL AM 580. The phone lines are open if you have questions or comments for David Sirota at 217-333-9455, our toll-free number, 1-800-222-9455. And I want to talk a lot about politics this hour, David. You write about it as well as anyone, and this is such an interesting and, and in some respects, depressing year. Uh, before we get into the Obama administration and the Democrats and, and, the, and the, exactly the fall race, which I want to turn to next, I just want to ask you, what would happen in your view if the Republicans ran the board in November and Romney Ryan won the White House and the, and the Republicans had a majority uh, in the House and Senate in Washington? Uh, what, what would you think the sort of uh, policies we see? Would it, would it be more or less the same or would there be a perceptible difference? I think if, if Mitt Romney becomes president and the Republicans take back the, the Congress, I, I think that, that you will see a lot of the legislative um, uh, gravity be pushed towards the right, because I think a lot of the, leg the legislative agenda would be driven by the Republicans in Congress. I think Mitt Romney would be a rather weak president under those circumstances, but it wouldn't, it certainly move the, move the country farther to the right, because Mitt Romney would then have bills from the right wing of the Republican Party foisted upon him as president. I think if Mitt Romney is president and the Republicans don't take back um, that, the, the Congress, I think that could provide a, a pretty interesting dynamic. I think you'd, you'd have a situation where Democrats would see a political opportunity in trying to put very popular progressive legislation on his desk to see if they could embarrass him or to see if he would sign it. I, I don't necessarily think that that would be a better situation than if if Mitt Romney is defeated. But I, I I'd be somebody who would look at at a Romney presidency and a Democratic Congress with some with some hope. I would be somebody who looked at, at would look at the Romney presidency and a Republican Congress as something near near to to political apocalypse. All right, David Sirota, thank you for that. Um, you know, the economy, you've written about it a lot. You've written about uh, the policies that have failed from both the Obama administration and the proposed policies of Romney and Ryan to deal with, say, for example, unemployment. And it seems to me that we're in a sort of a strange phase now where 8% has become the new 4%. That it's a sort of both parties sort of rhetoric aside, at least policy, when you look at what they're actually doing, are pretty much content with the current existing level of unemployment. I don't really sense any serious concern with the issue of unemployment from either party right now. I think that's right, and and I think I think that that it's a real problem, and it really says where where we've gone in our in our politics, where where a set of new normals has really become become the new normal are things that are that are that are perceived to be radical only four, five, six years ago. You can look at the national security state, what we've accepted in terms of our, in terms of trampling our privacy. You can look at unemployment, where I remember a time when six percent unemployment was seen as as awful and unacceptable, and now eight, eight and a half percent unemployment is seen as 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 the new normal. And and it doesn't have to be the new normal, but I think it's it's in part the new normal because both parties are, I think owned by big money interests that's not a radical statement and big money interests 
are doing quite well right now. Uh, and, and, and by the way, both Barack Obama and Mitt Romney have said this on the campaign trail. Uh, Barack Obama said he's, he, the private sector is doing quite well, and he looks at skyrocketing corporate profits, and, and he's right. Mitt Romney this week said big business is doing quite well, and, and they're both right. So you have a situation where big money interests are doing quite well. Both parties are owned by big money interests, and so the new normal that has come out of both parties is the idea that, hey, everything's not so bad. Now, of course, Mitt Romney and, and Obama say they're not happy with the economy. They have to do that in order to get votes. But in terms of the policy, a lot of the policies are status quo because the status quo is, is serving the interests that fund both parties. The one issue that Romney seems to show the greatest devotion to, I mean, you know, he's notorious for basically flip-flopping and saying whatever is expedient on virtually any issue that he doesn't really care. But the one thing that seems to really move him is lower taxes on billionaires and multimillionaires. And, uh, you know, what would, were he president and, I mean, institute these sort of drastic cuts on, on the wealthy and taxations on business and corporations and billionaires, what, I mean, what's the theory about how that's supposed to be good for the economy? I mean, isn't that the same old uh, supply side uh, stuff from the 80s that has been discredited? Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's trickle-down economics to, to, the, to its core. When, when we hear about job creators, yeah, that's, the, that's the, the buzz phrase now, the job creators. We have to but, cut taxes on but, the job creators. That's the idea that, that, that the very wealthy are those who create the jobs, and the rest of us are just the, 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 the poor loafers who are lucky <laughs> enough to, to supposedly get a job from the, from the job creators. But what we don't hear is that, in, in many cases, demand by consumers are is a job creator that if you put more money in the in the pockets of middle and and working class people that will actually create the demand for products that act, that that creates a job just I, I would i would argue that just as much as a quote unquote job creator decides to create a job out of nothing that without demand for products uh, there there are no jobs so so i mitt romney's proposals when it comes to taxes when it comes to the to the notion of we have to make things as easy as possible for the super wealthy among us that's the way to fix the economy we've tried this experiment this experiment and not just in the reagan era but the last 10 12 years were just found to be the worst decade on record in terms of economic growth in the country's contemporary history and the key the biggest economic policy that we saw change from the previous era were the Bush tax cuts and tax cuts on 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 dividends, high income, targeted high income tax cuts, and it's it's completely bizarre that we would look back on the last ten years and and say, hey, let's do more of what we did in the last ten years when the economic record shows that it didn't work for most people. Now again, I go back to my point. Then why is that the that why is that the proposal and why did President Obama, for instance? sign on to extending the Bush tax cuts when he did. That's because while things haven't been good for most of us, they've been good for the people who hold disproportionate political power in this country. Our guest, David Sirota. I'm Bob McChesney. This is Media Matters. If you'd like to join us today on our live program here, the number 217-333-9455, the toll-free number 1-800-222-9455. David Sirota, you um, have worked for candidates. You, in fact, when I first met you, I think over a decade ago, you were working on the staff of Bernie Sanders, the, then the independent uh, representative from Vermont, now the independent U.S. senator from Vermont. But you have worked for uh, Democrats, I think, over the years as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as you look at the Democratic Party, specifically President Obama, you have been, I think, uh, quite critical of him. And that's gotten you in hot water sometimes with some people who say liberals need to always batten down the hatches and defend President Obama. What is your, uh, why do you, why, why have you been such a critic of the Obama administration? Well, I've been a critic of the Obama administration because I, I'm somebody who I guess is old-fashioned in the sense that I remember what was promised on the campaign trail and what was done, uh, what he, what he's done as president, and. He made a series of very crystal clear promises that he wouldn't do certain things and he would do other things, and he, in many cases, hasn't done either of those things. Uh, he, he's a person who, and, and the list is long, I mean, he's a person who's ta- talked about restoring uh, respect for civil liberties. He's criticized the Bush administration for, uh, for its trampling of privacy, its, its torture regime, et cetera, et cetera, and he has been somebody who has more aggressively expanded the surveillance state. Now we have uh, we have a, a president asserting the the right to execute American citizens without without an indictment. Um, 
He's a president who said he would never sign on to the to the Bush tax cuts. Who has done that? He's somebody who said that he would renegotiate NAFTA and ha- has not only not done that, but has pushed a series of NAFTA-style trade deals with other countries to expand uh, that failed regime, which is a job-killing uh, a set of job-killing ideas. So, and, and the list goes on. And, and so, and so, and I know the argument is well, he had a, a difficult time with with the Congress and. There's two points on that. First, he had 60 votes in the United States Senate and a Democratic Congress. In other words, he had one of the biggest demo- uh, biggest Democratic majorities in the country's history. So the whole idea that he he couldn't do anything because he didn't have a, a, a Congress that would work with him is just preposterous on its face. The other thing I would say is that he, in many cases he didn't try to do what he promised. He didn't. It's one thing to try and fail, but this is a president who, on many on many issues has not only not tried but has joined the other side he he has had he uh, when you think about the the health care debate for as one example this is a person who promised to push a health care reform that would include some sort of public option that is a a government sponsored public option for people as an alternative to private insurance he's a person who who made sure that that was removed from the final health care bill and there are other examples like this so my ultimate problem with President Obama is that I think he's an extremely cynical politician who is relying on the fact that voters don't remember what he promised and relying on the fact that voters won't know what he's actually done with his power. And he he talks a good game, and he thinks that people won't check his rhetoric with what he's actually done. You live in Colorado, which I think is a purple state the last time I looked, that it could go either way in November. And I, I think it probably it's awfully difficult for Barack Obama to get reelected uh, if he does not win Colorado, I haven't done all the math, but that'd be my guess. Uh, are you going to vote for him? Oh boy! Well, I, I want to see where the rest of the campaign goes. I, I think my, my my vote is is. I mean, first of all, it's immaterial to 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 my coverage of him, but but I I, I want to see where the rest of this campaign goes. I, I've reached a point in my life where I've I've started to wonder whether whether voting for the lesser of two evils isn't unto itself endorsing a system that only pr- produces lesser of two evils. You know, the, and this gets to the point, David, that that a lot of people have been talking about, which is the way the, in the lesser of two evils system, what's been developing, maybe not because of the lesser of two evils, but in our two-party system, the whole terrain of debate keeps moving further and further to the right. Whichever party is aggressive to the right sort of drags everyone along with it so that um, you know, we're debating things like the public education, Social Security, Medicare, progressive taxation, things that for generations were taken for granted as a sort of innately signs of American progress are now being, uh, you know, they're on the chopping block. And, you know, it just seems, it, and, and the reason I raise this question is that it's not clear to me that the American people have become much more rabidly right-wing people, but our political culture would suggest they have. Yeah, it's a bizarre situation, and and I think one way for people to understand how bizarre it is is to remember what's gone on in the last four years. So, Wall Street essentially engineered a a, a, a scam on a grand scheme when it came to housing and lending, which ultimately cratered the economy. And then they then Wall Street was given a massive taxpayer bailout, and at the end of that that process. You have, after Wall Street cratered the economy and was then bailed out, we're having a debate about about how much we should cut Medicare and how much we should cut Social Security and why public employees are supposedly the Antichrist. It, it, it's it's completely bizarre. How do you go from Wall Street destroying the economy to we need to dest- we need to destroy Medicare and Social Security and and demonize teachers and and firefighters and public employees? It it, it makes no sense. But it makes sense if you understand that the political debate that we have around crises is now so rigged is now so i think um, uh, it's so tilted at at the fundamental linguistic level because the people who frame those debates politicians for instance uh, media corporations they don't they have a vested interest in 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 diverting our attention from real problems because if we focus on real problems, the real issues at hand in our country that we need to, that means questioning things like corporate power and the concentration of wealth, which, again, the folks who control our politics don't want us to discuss. 
Our guest, David Schroeder, we're live on WILL AM 580. The show is Media Matters. I'm the host, Bob McChesney. Phone lines open at 217-333-9455 or our toll-free line, 1-800-222-9455. Let's go to our toll-free line now. Line 4, Coles County. You're on the earth, David Sirota. Yes. Uh, you know, many Republicans and many conservatives, they claim that the U.S. simply cannot afford things like Social Security, can't afford pensions, can't afford Medicare, Medicaid, student financial aids, can't afford unemployment compensation, and the list goes on and on and on. If this is so, maybe there's no better evidence that we need to move away from the capitalist system and go toward uh, some kind of democratic socialism. What are, what are your comments? David? Well, my, my, my comment is that I think that that I would put it this way. I think that we need to look at, at other models and ask what are, they, what are other models doing right that we could be doing, that we could be mimicking. We have a system right now where our healthcare system is the most inefficient in the industrialized world. We have, a, we have a, a, uh, an education system which is segregating people by income, oftentimes by race and class, and is becoming increasingly unaffordable for people to, to go to college. And other nations whose economies are now, in many cases, doing better than ours, have, if not solved these problems, have certainly better addressed these problems. You look at an example, Canada. Canada has a, it's not a perfect system, but it has a universal health care system, a single-payer system, that produces, on average, better results than ours. Longer life expectancies, lower infant mortality, et cetera, et cetera. It also now has, as of a month ago, the, for, for the first time, it, it, the average family in Canada has a higher net worth than the average family in the United States. So whatever you label the system, I would say that we suffer as a country right now from this idea that, not, that, that we're number one, this idea of American exceptionalism, which then makes us believe we, don't, we shouldn't look elsewhere to other models that we could potentially mimic in certain cases for better results. It's interesting, David Sirota, because... Uh... That, that caller is, I wouldn't have gotten that call five years ago or 10 years ago, uh, and I doubt you would have gotten a call like that. And I'm seeing in the last year or two or three a much more sort of open-minded attitude that maybe we don't have the world's greatest economy, maybe the very way it's structured, uh, not just political corruption, but the very way it's structured is really leading us to the political corruption as much as the political corruption is leading us to this economy. And so like that caller said, uh, maybe you have to think about a whole different type of economy. There's a new book out by Jerry Mander. I'm not f sure if you're familiar with it. And he's basically saying that I'm a lifelong business guy, but the system I got rich on, it isn't working any longer and it's not going to work. And I think a lot of people are, are, are concluding that. And, and and the question is, where do we go now? And 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 the and one of the problems is that linguistically, terms like socialism, terms like even democratic socialism, people get very very I think paranoid about them. They get very very crazed about them. And I, and and look, the 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 right has 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 seized on that. That's why you see everything President Obama proposes being called a socialist or, or communist, which is so ridiculous that, 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 that President Obama, who would have qualified five, six, seven, eight years ago as a, as a, as a, fairly, a fairly standard Republican, and now he's a, now, uh, in terms of his political ideology, now, now what he's proposing is being called socialist. The, the, the health care bill he proposed was basically a bill written by the Heritage Foundation and passed by Mitt Romney in Massachusetts. It's now being called a socialist health care bill. It's preposterous. But I think that 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 to to get from people realizing that the system is not working for them to a reevaluation of the system requires us to I think some slowly but surely get by some of the uh, some of the super loaded terms. Now, one one good good news piece of news here is that generationally speaking, there was a poll out I think it was six months ago which showed that when you look at younger folks. They don't necessarily recoil from terms like socialism or democratic socialism as much as older generations. Probably that has something to do with the with the hangover from the Cold War. So, and and whether we call what a new paradigm looks like is socialism or we call it something else, I do think we are at this point right now where slowly but surely people are genuinely questioning the entire system and structure. I'm reminded a few years ago when Michael Moore had his film Capitalism, a Love Story come out, 
And it was probably one of the first things in American popular culture that got that much publicity that it was critical, fundamentally, of capitalism. He was on CNN, and I think it was Wolf Blitzer, but it was one of the hosts uh, interviewing him. And the host was sort of grilling him, well, if you don't like capitalism, if you don't think it's the best system, what do you propose as a substitute? What, what, where, you, where do you want to take us? And he said, democracy. And, uh, and it was actually a sort of jarring answer at the time, uh, but he put it in those terms. He sort of shifted the entire train of debate in the interview. Yeah, well, I, I mean that, that that's the problem, right? The, the the problem is is that people can can be can be critics of the system uh, as it stands, but people also don't want to. Uh, they get nervous about what what proposals should 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 be in in its place. Right now, we're having almost a one-sided debate in this country where people are not are, are frustrated with the system, and the proposal to fix it is to is to essentially intensify the system as it stands that's the that's to me the ryan budget the ryan budget says we have a problem with the system and the way to fix the system is to is to double down on it that that somehow the 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 problem with the with the system is that we've got too much quote-unquote socialism uh, and not enough quote-unquote capitalism and i think it's how if you ask the question how did we come out of a wall street cratering the economy because wall street wasn't properly regulated to a, 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 a situation where essentially the, the, the duopoly is arguing that Wall Street is overregulated, this just speaks to, uh, to a dysfunction in the way we talk about things. And, but again, I go back to, to being an optimist. I, I do think it, there's, there's a potential for change in the fact that more and more people recognize at least that the existing system isn't working. Our guest, David Sirota, who's uh, joining us live today in Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. The phone lines are open at 217-333-9455 or toll-free 1-800-222-9455. David Sirota uh, is an activist, a columnist for Salon.com, a radio host out in Denver, author of several books, including in 2011, Back to the Future, which was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, David, we had someone who emailed or called in on their cell phone and they had bad connections, so they left a message with uh, my producer, Christina Williams. So I'll, I'll read to you their question. Uh, and they said, David Schroeder, do you think government programs like unemployment and Medicaid can get so big that some people might lose their incentive to get out of those programs? You know, I guess the point being, a welfare state produces people who just want to live off the state and not work. Yeah, I don't see it that way. I mean, I, I, I again, I, I look to. We can answer that question, I think, by looking at at, at other countries, and, and and other countries aren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But you don't see a problem with people being motivated in places like France, in places like Germany, in places like Scandinavia. These are places whose workers are highly, highly productive, and and, and that's not a that's not a, a, a point of interpretation. I'm talking about economically productive hours put in versus pr- production produced. Germany, France, Scandinavia; these have some of the most productive workforces in the world, and they have very, very, um, uh, uh, very, very well developed welfare states. When it comes to healthcare, when it comes to job retraining, when it comes to, to to family and medical leave, so I see it the other way around. When people don't have to worry about maybe going medically bankrupt, or they don't have to worry about college debt putting them into debt for the rest of their lives, they can actually focus on the work that they want to do, which helps an economy become far more productive. David Sirota, our guest today on Media Matters. David, you know that one of our joint areas of great interest is media, how media cover politics. I do it for a living, and that's one of the reasons I do this show. You are a journalist, you're a columnist and a radio host, and you've got an article now that's just out in the brand new issue of Harper's Magazine, uh, which you were generous enough to share with me before it went to print and I devoured it. And you make a pretty powerful argument about sort of what's happening at local politics in this country with the collapse of journalism is taking us sort of back to the worst days of sort of the Hearst empires and maybe even worse than that. Explain what your argument is. We, we've gone through a, a series of newspaper eras in this country that the past, we've really gone through three in the modern era. The first was what we all remember as the, well, if you were alive back then, but even in, in, in history, the Citizen Kane era, which was this era of 
newspaper titans who were big personalities and political activists using their newspaper properties to push their own personal political ideology and agenda. The check on their power in, the, in that era, and that was uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, was the height of that, was the idea that there were many different newspapers out there. So if one newspaper owner put out his vision of the world, uh, at least their power was checked in the same media market by another newspaper or a series of newspapers who would put out another vision of the world, and there would be a check on power. In the middle of the 20th century, we moved to an era where the publicly traded corporation bought up many of those newspapers and consolidated the industry. And and many newspaper markets were left with one or maybe only two newspapers. However, the check on the power of those publicly traded corporations in terms of their 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 political ideology was that a publicly traded corporation cares almost exclusively about shareholder profits. So a newspaper in a given media market owned by a, a distant publicly traded corporation they were less interested in in pushing a particular political ideology than simply making a lot of money. And so we saw an era of purported objectivity rise up. It wasn't neither of these eras were perfect. Now we've entered the age where we get the worst of both worlds. The newspaper industry is losing revenue, it's losing circulation, and so the publicly traded corporations who are only interested in, in profit have are in many cases selling off the remaining newspapers, which are now monopolies in most cities in America, they're selling them off to private citizen cane-like individuals. But in this era, there are, there's no check on the power, in many cases, of these new citizen canes, because they're both private owners who can decide unilaterally to put their ideology into their, into their news coverage, and they're, in many media markets, there's no check on their, their power at all. There's no alternate news source at the same level to put out to 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 scoop them to embarrass the the monopolist for for putting out a version of events that's skewed so in in cities like where i'm talking to you from denver colorado to places like san diego to philadelphia to chicago we have seen private newspaper owners using their monopoly newspaper holdings to skew the news towards their own personal political ideologies, or in many cases, in some cases, for their own business interests. And, and we can go into some, detail, some, some examples if you'd like. Well, yeah, and it's a fascinating piece. You go through all those cities in the piece, but it just, I mean, because it is, it, you know, we don't, it doesn't show up at the national level. So for the people who comb MSNBC or Fox News or the New York Times, it's not a story you're going to see. But if you live in any of the cities you mentioned, especially Denver, where you live, or San Diego, I think is probably the most striking example. It's these sort of local local press lords who control the newsroom, the dwindling one dwindling newsroom left in the town, uh, really dominate politics in a way that would have made uh, Hearst envious. Absolutely, uh, we we see here's here's a couple of examples. We the the owner of the San Diego Union Tribune is a Republican activist named Doug Manchester. He just bought the newspaper, and within a few weeks, he had the paper publish a front page editorial arguing for a massive state and city municipal expenditure on a waterfront redevelopment plan. At the same time, it not disclosing that Doug Manchester owns a series of hotels and properties along the waterfront, which would, of course, stand to benefit from that. Readers didn't get a sense, didn't get a, 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 any disclosure about that in the front page editorial of their Monopoly newspaper. Here in Denver, we've seen a situation where Right before an election, the New York Times published a front-page story about a deal in which the then-superintendent of schools put the school's finances in the hands of Wall Street, which made his future campaign contributors a whole lot of money when he was running for Senate. Those campaign contributors became essentially underwrote his campaign. The New York Times runs a front-page story on that four days before the election, but guess which paper did not run that story, hadn't, run, hadn't covered that issue for the entire campaign? the Monopoly newspaper here in the Denver Post, because I would argue the Denver Post editor and owner is very, very close politically with the person in, in question, the conservative lawmaker who was ultimately elected to the U.S. Senate, in, in part because that story was buried, Michael Bennett. So in city after city after city, you are now starting to see, well, you're not starting to see because it's hard to see, but what's happening is that owners are stealthily using their newspapers to skew coverage towards their 
personal or political ideologies, and there's very little check on their power. Now, I know the argument is, well, what about the Internet? What about radio? What about television? And certainly there are good news organizations in those mediums. However, as the FCC has, has reported, the, the fact is today, bizarrely enough, more news coverage than ever more of what you see, read, and hear in every medium is actually driven by the newspaper. It's kind of paradoxical. The newspaper, newspapers are losing circulation, they're losing revenue, but they still have the most journalists on the ground. And they're losing fewer journalists as compared to other media organizations. So in a, in, in a sense, more of the entire media system, especially at the local level, is built even more on the newspaper than it was in the past. So when you're reading a when you're hearing on the on the radio a, a news story or you're seeing on television a news story or you're reading on a blog on a, a, a news story, oftentimes you are actually reading a derivative of something that was originally written in that local monopoly newspaper and when that means that when that local monopoly newspaper's content is politically skewed, it actually has a re- reverb effect, an amplification effect greater than it ever had in the past. Our guest, David Sirota, you've just been listening to. I'm Bob McChesney. This is Media Matters. We're coming to you live today on WILL AM 580. Phone lines are open. We welcome your call at 217-333-9455 or the toll-free line 1-800-222-9455. David Sirota, columnist for Salon.com, radio host in Denver, author of several books, including Back to the Future. And I urge you to go to his website, davidsirota.com, uh, to, to see some of the, the, the archives of his writings, learn more about his work. And can you listen to the radio show there for people outside of the Denver area? Yeah, you can, you can find it at sirotabrown.com. Well, you got a lot of websites. Yeah, I do. That's that, that's where you can find my radio show. <laughs> com. Okay, thank yeah. you, David. Well, David Sirota, one of the issues that you've already mentioned once and you've, you've written about, and I know is very near and dear to your heart, is the state of public education in the United States. And uh, your wife, Emily, ran for school board in Denver last fall in a race that got a lot of attention nationally because uh, the power of the Denver school board seems inordinate compared to other cities, from what I know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, this this raging issue that isn't really a national issue. It's a, it's a state and local issue. And, and what's at stake here and what's going on? There is a huge battle in school districts all over the country to try to privatize and charterize uh, public schools. And charter, let's be clear, charter schools are publicly run, excuse me, privately run, publicly financed schools. So they're public money going to a school that is run by private institutions and private individuals. There's a huge amount of money to be made in in this part of politics. Schools... Are, are the amount of spending that happens on schools, although I think in, particularly in our state it's, not, it's comparatively low, it's still in aggregate a lot of money. And so there are a number of, of very powerful political uh, and corporate interests that want to privatize and charterize schools. And so what we've seen happen at the local level in cities throughout the country is an effort to buy elections to school boards, to then crush the teachers' union, which is the has traditionally been the the single the largest force making an argument for public schools, true traditional neighborhood public schools, and here in Denver, that was a obviously that's the that's the dynamic that the election took on that that you had a huge amount of out of state out of city spending, people writing twenty five thousand dollar checks to individual candidates running for an unpaid school board position and this is happening in a very quiet way in in school school districts across the country but it it it's happening and there's big money at stake if you live whether in a city or in a suburb, your school district is now seen as a potential investment opportunity for everyone from technology companies to education. Uh, education uh, corporations that run schools and because school board races fly under the radar a comparatively little amount of money in terms of national politics can go a long way now it's certainly a lot of money at the local level Uh, my wife had about three hundred thousand dollars spent spent against her in running for a single school board seat in an unpaid position in in a single city mid-sized city like denver colorado it's an unpaid position it's an unpaid position. Wow. Right. 
Yeah, so $300,000 is now obviously a, a, an enormous amount of money in, in, a, in a race like that. But if you think about it in terms of, of what's at stake, the Denver, the Denver school budget is hundreds of millions of dollars. And there, there is there's a, a huge amount of money that a set of corporations, a set of interests can make off of buying a few school, school board seats strategically placed in cities across, uh, across the country. For 300, a $300,000 investment, a company, an educational technology company, could be making a couple of million bucks in terms of a, of a contract. So this is what's happening in school in, in, in cities across the country. And for many reasons, it's not getting much coverage because, well, for various reasons. It's, it's, it's a local issue. There's not a lot of reporting capacity to, to report on it. Or, of course, this, the, the newspapers and the, the media architecture in, in individual cities are run by corporate conservatives who don't have a, a, a political ideological interest in covering it. Let's go back to the phone lines right now to line four Springfield. You're on the air with David Sirota. Yes, thank you. Uh, earlier, Mr. Sirota had mentioned the the uh, concept of American exceptionalism with the idea that it meant that since our intentions are good, we don't need to have any checks on what we do in the world because of those good intentions. And my understanding is that the concept originally meant that the United States didn't have a socialist tradition because there has never been a feudal system in the United States. And if that was originally the definition, I was wondering if um, he might know how it got uh, changed uh, to the other term. And also, I wondered if uh, he had any thoughts as to whether we might be moving toward a feudal system with the very rich being the uh, new nobility. And I'll take my question off the air. Well, thank you very much, caller. David Sirota? My answer is American exceptionalism is, is, has had a long and, and, and winding history of what it means. I, I take it to mean that, 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 that we, we believe and we tell ourselves that we are number one. And, and that has, I think, in recent years led us to say that since we're number one, we, any, any suggestion that we look to other countries for what they're doing successfully is somehow un-American, or it's somehow not, not you're, you don't believe that America is exceptional. Or, David, and, if I can interrupt you, doesn't it also lead, it, the more extreme version now, to the idea that, therefore, America doesn't have to follow international law or play by the rules everyone oh, oh, yeah, and by? There's absolutely that. A- absolutely. That we, we don't have, because we're exceptional, we don't have to submit to any of the, the rules that the rest of the world plays by, any of the treaties that we've even signed on to, or any of the international laws that we've supposedly signed on to. I think the, the the danger of American exceptionalism is not thinking that America is exceptional. I'm, I think in many ways America is exceptional. It's in thinking that America is so exceptional that to question anything that we're doing is to is to somehow be unpatriotic. And we're going to see. I believe that this is going to be a big theme at the Republican convention. Mitt Romney was on Fox News actually today talking about what he's going to he's going to ultimately say in his convention speech, and he he talks about uh, American exceptionalism in a way that implies that to suggest something has gone wrong with our economy at a, at a systemic level is to somehow question the American ideal. Now, I find it particularly bizarre because, of course, in America, one of the most popular presidents in our, in our history is Franklin Roosevelt, who is, if you want to use the term socialist, was certainly far more quote-unquote socialist than many presidents that we've seen in, in subsequent years. All of them. And, 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 and so there's this bizarre situation where American exceptionalism has come to mean not questioning the existing economic system that we have in a country that nonetheless one of its most popular presidents was a president who did fundamentally challenge the way the system was working then. Our guest, David Sirota. David, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. Uh, there's so much you write about in your columns for Salon and, and, and in your books. Uh, a couple issues I want to make sure we get to uh, before we get back to the phone lines. You know, there's a couple big wars that are being fought that don't get any attention in politics, but they swallow up a lot of our resources and a lot of lives. One is the war on terror, and the other is the war on drugs. Uh, what's your what's your sense of how we're doing in those wars and where we should go with them? Well, I think the the the, the wars are are fundamentally misguided. Both the, the so-called war on terror and the and and the war on drugs. I, I think that 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 we haven't had an honest discussion about either. 
and 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 we need to have one. Uh, we 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 haven't had an honest discussion about them. I would argue in part because there are vested corporate and financial interests in not wanting us to have those debates. Uh, the military-industrial complex, military contractors are some of the most powerful political interests out there. They have managed to ascribe patriotism to the defense budget in a way that doesn't even allow us to talk about the defense budget, which is the largest defense budget in human history and is rife with waste, fraud, and abuse. Same thing with the war on drugs. There are vested political and financial interests that want us to continue the, the war on drugs. Everyone from the from the industries that represent drugs that are legal, like alcohol and tobacco, they don't want us to, to stop the war on other drugs because they have an oligopoly on mind-altering substances. To the weapons makers and the and the the the, the drug testing industry, et cetera, et cetera. And the prison complex. Making, uh, yeah, there's a whole complex there. I would say this. I think we're we're finally starting to make progress in discussing the the uh, some reforms to the war on drugs. I think because the crisis at the state budget level has forced states to start asking questions about incarceration, not necessarily out of a, out of a sense of, of, of moral questions, why are we incarcerating so many people who are using marijuana, for instance, but simply because it's expensive to keep people incarcerated. And so I think there's been a convergence of factors that, that, that gives me hope that we're, we're actually going to see a, a – a de-escalation of the war on drugs. Right here in Colorado, there's a, a decent chance that a ballot measure will pass to legalize for recreational use and then treat it like, regulate it like alcohol, uh, the, the substance marijuana. And I think it's got a good shot to pass. And, and so I'm actually optimistic when it comes to the war on drugs that, that we're going to see a change. Let's go back to the phone lines for another caller. Line one, Champagne, you're on the earth, David Sirota. Yes, good morning, um, or afternoon. I have another uh, take on the... Uh, the view of why the importance of of um, taking over the schools and turning them into charter schools. Um, textbooks. Textbooks give the you know the students who are eyeballing those words um, a notion that this is true. What's in a textbook is true. And we've heard just in the last week or so, without you know the junk science with how women's bodies work and. When Michelle Bachman was in the race, some of the, the the bizarre kinds of history that's been rewritten, well, she's learning. She learned those from textbooks. And this guy down in Missouri, he's learned it from textbooks or some, some book. And I think that that's a big thing because when I was teaching, um, I was on different uh, committees and we would select textbooks. We would look at a whole series of them and select the textbooks and that's the big thing about teaching students. If you teach them the way you want them to think, you do it through the textbooks. And the teachers are told you can't go outside of the textbook. What uh, comment do you have about that? I'll hang up and listen. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, caller. David Sirota? Textbooks are a huge source. Uh, I mean, they're both a, a, a political instrument and they're a huge source of revenue for the textbook makers. And so, and so you're right to, to, to ask, a, ask the question, what do what does the attempt to take over school boards have to do with the with the with the textbook industry, which I would put under the under the under the umbrella of the for-profit education industry? And then how are those textbooks then changed to reflect certain political ideologies? That's a whole separate that's a whole separate question, which I think is equally equally as disturbing. I mean, we saw what happened down in Texas with the school the state school board down there trying to take out certain people from history, add in certain conservative people from history. This, and you're right. This is exactly where kids learn to think about uh, think about the next generation learns to think about its conception of our economy, its conception of our of our of our country, and 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 so it just is a reminder that a school board election may seem like just a school board election, but it it is at it is right at the nexus of where the rubber meets the road in terms of shaping the views of an entire generation for the future. David Sirota, our guest. I'm Bob McChesney. This is Media Matters. We've got a few minutes left, and David, I want to I want to conclude on talking about what I think generally could be an issue. We could talk about the full hour. It's sort of the overriding dominant issue now of our political system, which is money and politics. Uh, the enormous increase of unaccountable money coming overwhelmingly from a very small number of extremely rich people. 
which is sort of ruling the roost now. And I think a striking example of that is how at the Republican convention, apparently the real locus of all the activity is going to be largely private events for the small handful of funders who bankroll the party. And that's where Romney and Ryan and their top people will be spending most of the time, except for when they do TV appearances uh, at the convention floor. And, you know, both parties are doing it. What what do you what's your take on this and how do we get out of this mess? Yeah, it's a big question, and I don't know if there's a single answer. I think that, unfortunately, I think things are going to get worse and going to have to get worse before they get better. I thought that the Wall Street collapse and what happened in the in the economy, the silver lining would be that people would become better aware and therefore mobilized around a, 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 a changing an economy that allows for that kind of thing to happen, and not just an economy but, a, but, but political policies that – that, that shape that economy. It hasn't happened yet. I think we're we're still at the point of of, of awareness where people are, are only slowly becoming aware of the problem. And, and again, I think things are unfortunately going to get worse, and and, and unfortunately going to have to get worse for for more people to mobilize around this. What I worry about is that the mobilization ultimately that will come, and it will come that it will be around an effort to actually make things even worse. Uh, that, that I think you see that in the nascent Tea Party movement, where, where the purported solution to a Wall Street crisis bought, brought on by a lack of regulation is to somehow deregulate the economy even further. And I think we're entering a very volatile age, uh, a, a time where you're going to see Congress's switch party control and you're going to see a, a lot of really unpredictable politics. But I, I, again, as an eternal optimist, I, I do hold out hope that that ultimately we will see some change, and that we will see some change for the better. Because I think when I think people will look to other to other countries and other societies and say, hey, yeah, you know, we may be different than those societies, but but those societies have managed to solve at least some of the problems that we're still dealing with, and they've managed to solve those problems in a way where they still do have a flourishing economy. It's not like when you go up to Canada, everybody has health care and there's a much larger middle class and families are more wealthy, but there aren't rich people. There are plenty of rich people and pl- plenty of very successful companies and corporations up, up in a place like Canada. I think it's time for us to start asking the question, can we fa- strike a better balance? Where Because, unfortunately, so much of our politics is talked about in, extreme, in extremes. The Republicans, for instance, will say that any talk of, of real single-payer universal health care will bring, or, bring about the Soviet Union or North Korea. There is a middle ground, and I think increasingly we have to dial down the rhetoric and say, look, what kinds of reforms are possible to make? That, that won't get us to a, a supposed dystopian future. And I think, that, I think once we get to that level of maturity, and maybe that's the word I'm looking for, maturity, I think our prospects will be a lot brighter. You know, but going to the near term, because you said you think things are going to get a lot worse. I mean, what I'm dealing with, with a lot of people I talk to and students I teach, is you're looking at a near term where money basically is the lingua franca, large amounts of it, to the point where even a small donor, it's pretty irrational to donate to a candidate anymore. Uh, and then all the money goes to pay for moronic TV ads uh, that you you don't want to watch. Uh, you know, in the near term, with both parties are really beholden to getting enormous sums of money to buy moronic TV ads. You know, what? <laughs> how do you get the sort of discussion in play? It's a very good question. I think it. I think it starts increasingly at the at the local level. Of course, you've got newspaper monopolies that try to squelch that. But I do think that that. Ultimately, you're going to see a collapse of some major newspaper monopolies at the local level, which will put a premium on, on I think, smaller, uh, smaller venues for communication. David Schroeder, I, think... I just committed a crime I bet you never do in your radio show. I asked you a five-minute question with 30 seconds left. Understand, <laughs> understand. and I, I'll just end it by saying this. I think we're going to see an era where smaller venues of media create some check on the monopolies who want to squelch a real discussion of exactly what you're talking about. Our guest, David Sroda, who's taken time from his schedule and his family to join us this Sunday. I can't thank you enough, David. Good luck with your work. Hey, thanks so much, Bob. It's been a pleasure. I want to thank Christina Williams, my producer, Kyle Crowe, the engineer. I'm Bob McChesney. I'll be gone next week. We've got a great encore program that'll be on the air for you, but I'll be back with a full slate of shows in September. Thank you very much, listeners. Have a great week.
Today's broadcast is made possible with support from Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance, private instruction for social or competitive dancing, weddings, or other special events, lessons for singles or couples, beginners, or advanced of all ages. Information at 378-4601 or on your web, search at Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance. This is Illinois Public Media, WIL.